we're going to now turn our attention to the back middle portion of the worship guide. There you'll find uh, the scripture on which uh, our sermon is based. I'm going to invite Brittany forward in a moment to read it, um, but let me, psych, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to give you a little introduction of what's going on in Paul's letter to Titus. Uh, this letter that we're reading, um, it comes from the first century, probably sometime around the mid-60s AD, and it was written by the Apostle Paul to help churches on the island of Crete, to help them to mature and to grow. Crete was a large island in the Mediterranean Sea, it's a little bit bigger than PEI, and it was a pretty distinct region uh, within the Roman Empire. But by Paul's time, the good news about Jesus Christ was making inroads even here in the middle of nowhere. New churches were beginning to spring up as a result. And while this was amazing, this was very encouraging, there was obviously still so much more work to be done. And so Paul writes in this letter to Titus to encourage him, to instruct him, to set into order what remained. That's how the, the letter begins. Titus is kind of a, a co-laborer with Paul, not an apostle, but like apostle-ish. Um, Titus is on Crete to help churches grow up and to help them grow out, to train and equip leaders, to develop new godly habits in the church, to answer troublemakers, and of course, to spread the good news of Jesus uh, to even more people. Just like the first listeners of this letter, we too... Christ Church Halifax, a new church here in the city, we're listening to this letter, asking God to speak to us and to help us to continue the work that he started. Brittany. Titus chapter 2, verse 1 to 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, we ask for your help 
and mercy now. Send your spirit on us. Open our ears. Soften our hearts. Make strong our hands and ready our feet to believe and do all you've planned to speak to and accomplish in us now. In Christ's name, amen. A few weeks ago, we had a sermon entitled, and we explored this theme, What Are We Doing When We Worship? What are we doing when we worship? When we get together here, what are we doing? And the theologian Peter Lightheart, he gave a pretty simple explanation for this. I quoted, I quoted him. He writes, we set, up the, we set up God's table, we invite folks to dinner, make sure they wash up, and then teach them how to eat together. We set up God's table, invite folks to dinner, make sure they wash up, teach them how to eat together. The church in Crete had set up the table. The invitations had gone out. Jesus Christ was offered to anyone and everyone who hungers, anyone who thirsts deep in their spirits. Christ has come to satisfy the deepest parts of you, to fill you with his own life. The church of Crete had begun to wash up. They were putting off their old habits, uh, their evil ways, through the waters of baptism, which signify our cleansing from sin, our new life in Christ. They were being made into a new people. But now... In chapter 2, they needed to learn how to eat together, how to live with each other, how to treat each other. They needed to learn what table manners looked like in the kingdom of God. This is their story. This is where we're at in chapter 2, but this is your story too. See, Paul tells Titus to give instructions to a variety of different kinds of people, people from different ages and stages who have been invited and brought into God's house, cleaned up for the meal, but now need instructions for how they're supposed to dine together. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is teaching them and he's teaching us what godly living looks like, what, what godly living looks like for each of us. Uh, for, for an outline for this morning, we're going to do a classic uh, who, what, why, where, and how of godly living. Who, what, why, where, and how of godly living. And we're going to try to answer these questions uh, looking closely at our text. So first, we're going to ask the who question of godly living. And the who question is this. Who directs godly living? Who, who determines what godly living within God's house looks like? Who gets to say how you should behave in the church? Now, there's perhaps no more basic message uh, that, that our world and our society never tires of telling us, and it's this, no one tells me who I am or what I do except me. Pretty much every Disney movie you've ever watched, if you watch closely, or if you listen to a near barrage of music, TV shows, films, podcasts, books, is, is this message on repeat. You can't tell me who I am. I tell me who I am. In philosophical terms, this is called expressive individualism. And all of us who grew up in the West, we, we've been saturated with it from infancy. If you know sayings like, you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself, these are all maxims of expressive individualism. And back in Crete, interestingly, things weren't terribly different from what they are right now. There was a Roman ideal held in Crete, maybe held a little str more strongly in Crete than other places, of sexual and social uh, liberty. Roman men in particular, they could kind of do what they wanted to within Roman law, if it pleased them. They would just say, I should live as I see fit. Whatever I want, I should be able to do. Things were actually a little bit more socially restricted for women, uh, but in Paul's time, there was this growing movement known as the New Roman Woman Movement. 
Roman women were finally privileged to live as promiscuously, as selfishly as the men were. And so Cretans back then, like many in our culture, they might answer the question of who directs how you should live by responding, I do. I decide what's right for me and no one else. But in God's house, Paul writes, things are very different. In God's house, God directs what godly living is. And he does so through his word and through his representatives. Everywhere in the Bible, we learn that God has made us, not we ourselves. He has made us for himself. Because we didn't make ourselves, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God, body and soul, both in life and in death. Therefore, as God's creatures, we don't look within ourselves for direction and purpose and morality, but we look to our creator who made us for himself and for his purposes. So we're to listen to his word, read it, meditate on it, and and look for direction within it. Now, Jesus, of course, taught his disciples directly how they were supposed to live during his earthly ministry. But now during his heavenly ministry, he chooses to send out apostles and teachers, uh, people like Paul and Titus, to teach and to direct his church. Look at what Paul says in verse 1 of our text. He expects Titus, he instructs him to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, He wants Titus to approach the church in Crete to give them instructions on how they're supposed to live. If you look all the way down in verse 15, you see similar language. Titus is instructed to declare and to urge these things, to urge godly living um, among the Cretan Christians, and to do so with all authority. If you're not a Christian and you're, and you're hearing Paul's instructions to different people in Crete, uh, he might sound like um, somebody who wakes up very early to put on his bossy boots. He's the kind of person that wants to look at the way you live and just and correct everything about it. Uh, the kind of person that just loves to tell people the way they should live based on some old-fashioned, outdated opinions. Even some modern Christians treat Paul somewhat like this, like he's, like he's an, a distant elderly uncle who says things he probably shouldn't out loud. Uh, things that you and your friends find taboo or sexist or even worse. And if you think of Paul like that, like the elderly uncle, like the guy with the bossy boots, Titus 2, and other instructions that he gives or any things that, that you read in the New Testament can just be safely disregarded. That's what Uncle Paul says. But that's not who God says Paul is. That's not how Paul understands himself. Paul understands himself, and God sends him out as a called, qualified, and authorized representative of the head of the church himself, Jesus Christ. Paul and Titus have been chosen by God to direct godliness within the church. If you're a Christian, listen, this is the only safe and secure place to listen for direction for godliness. It can't be you. You can't listen to your own heart. You're a creature, not the creator. You can't listen to contemporary culture. That's a slippery fish, right? Like whatever our society right now finds morally correct, because you know, this this thing just slides around all over the place. But listen to this also. It can't be traditional culture or your family's culture. This is a common mistake, I think, in Christian circles. Is We look at traditional culture, how things have always been done in our house, and we look at that for moral direction. Whatever my grandparents did, uh, whatever was common in the 1950s, uh, Little House on the Prairie, Victorian England, that's how we should live. That gives us direction. That should be our standard. But that's not the case. None of those things. I'm not against Little House on the Prairie. It's a great TV show. But it's not a good place to look for moral direction. Not yourself, not contemporary culture, and not traditional culture should ultimately tell you what 
godly living looks like. Because who directs godly living in the church? God does. Through his word and through his chosen representatives, figures like Paul and Titus. So that's the who of godly living. Now the what question. What does godly living look like? What does it look like for the young and for the old, for men and for women, those who have leadership positions in the church and those trapped in oppressive social structures like servitude? What does godly living look like for them? You can see in verses 2 through 10 of our text this morning, Paul gets into really specific details for each age and stage. But what you see, if you look carefully, is that there are not only distinctions between people, but there are similarities in what godly living looks like. Godly living looks different for different people at times. There are both similarities and there are distinctions. Uh, if, if you look at our text again, you might note that this text doesn't directly address every group in the church. He's not specifically addressing in this text uh, single women. Likely he's not addressing single men. He's not addressing children. He's not addressing other groups that might be considered part of the Christian household in the first century. Um, if you are interested in more specific directions, uh, you can look at other what are called household codes in the New Testament. Uh, you can look at Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 2 for, for more of these kind of household directions. But this doesn't mean if Paul's not talking about you in Titus 2 uh, that you're free range. I can just kind of do whatever I want. Good, he didn't mention me. <laughs> I'm off. Because godly living, though distinct in certain respects, has a lot of similarities between different people. Certainly, Every Christian has been given the Ten Commandments, which, which give in detail uh, the great commandment, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. But notice in our text um, uh, the similarities. Uh, maybe you notice that the word self-control was mentioned several times in our text. It's mentioned three times. In verse 2, when Paul's giving instructions to older men, he tells them, be self-controlled. When he speaks to younger women, he tells them to be self-controlled. When, when he talks to younger men, in verse 6, he tells them to be self-controlled. Self-controlled living's for everyone, right? Uh, handling our words, thoughts, and actions in ways that please God. This is the responsibility of everybody in the church. I want you also to note Paul's use of the word likewise, after he gives detailed instructions to older men, if you look at verse 4, Paul writes, Older women likewise, or in the same way, or in a similar way, uh, before he gives them their specific instructions. That happens again in verse 6, before Paul gives instructions to the young men. Paul writes, likewise. He's kind of grouping in everything that just came before. Uh, and he does this because there's actually a lot of carryover between one group of people to the next. Just like older men are called to be sound in faith and love and steadfastness, likewise, in a similar way, older and younger women, younger men, church leaders, bond servants, are called to those similar things. Yet importantly, and we, we, we must not miss this as we look at Titus 2, Paul unavoidably also makes distinctions for what godly living looks like in particular people because the what of godly living is given to particular people. Paul doesn't just actually give Titus, here's a one-size-fits-all approach to godly living. The same for everybody in every stage. It doesn't matter if you're a man. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Everyone, hey, we just all always do the exact same stuff. That's not the case. There are important God-given differences, distinctions between men, between women, between young and old. We, of course, are, are unique persons, but we find ourselves existing as unique individuals as well in certain times 
We're either being led by other people, if we're kids, or we're leading people as church leaders. And godly living, in many instances, maps on to our unique particularities as people that God has made at our age and our stage. Look, look at verses 2 to 3. Older men and older women are called by Paul to, listen, uh, uh, to take particular leadership towards the younger men and women in the church. Older men and women in our church, listen, you're to be, you're to be active examples and role models in a way that is unique to your age and station. Older women in particular, listen, you're called to take the younger women under your wings. Look at verse 3, the end of it. You're to do this so that you can teach them what is good, train them as wives and mothers. Uh, particular, uh, the particular emphasis here isn't just on young women, but young wives, young moms. So in verses 4 to 5, listen, if, if you find yourself right now in that situation, you're being called to look at what's particular to you in your surrounding right now. Godly living in this stage of your, your life, again, should map on to having kids and having a home. It won't always be like this, but where you are right now matters. This is what God has given to you right now, and living godly in this situation matters. Bond servants. Now, for us, uh, this sounds like it's a, a, something unique to the ancient world, but some, estimate, some estimates have uh, somewhere as many as 50 million people today either being born into or brought into slavery. This, this oppressive, difficult, often permanent uh, situation. The Bible has no love for slavery, just so you know. And Christians throughout history have fought tooth and nail to end it. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he wants bondservants and slaves to be free. In his letter to Philemon, he all but commands that a bondservant who is owned by a Christian should be freed. But as Paul writes here, listen, if you're a slave, if you're stuck in your place, even here in this horrible position, you're called to godly living as a bondservant. Even here in this, in this place, God wants you to live a life that's pleasing to him. That might sound provocative to you, but there it is in God's holy word in verses 9 through 10. Listen, where you find yourself right now matters for godly living. Godly living as a man or woman, married or not, older, younger, enslaved, imprisoned, or oppressed. God gives you particular and important distinctions on how you can live a life that's pleasing to him. So you need to, you need to heed God's word to listen to how he is directing you where you are right now in order to please him. We need to pay special attention because this is what godly living looks like. So we've got the who, we've got the what question of godly living, and now we're at the where. Uh, where does godly living take place? Where does godly living take place? Paul, again, he's writing to people living in ancient Crete, which we've said numerous times as we've gone through Crete, was notorious for lax morals, for laziness, for indulgence. Uh, this was an environment where uh, officially and unofficially, people were encouraged to live in the opposite direction of godliness. Just whatever the Christian ideal is, you can pretty much go the opposite way. Selfishness and self-indulgence um, was acceptable, it was accessible, it was very easy to live this way. Godly living then, for Christians in Crete, it meant standing out. It meant going against instead of with the stream of, of Cretan culture. It meant being a bit of an oddball, uh, the odd person out, whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, slave or free. Christians stood out like a sore thumb. 
And this meant then, as it does today, some real tensions with the culture around us. In Titus chapter 1, we read about false teachers, uh, enemies to the Christian faith. In Titus 2, we're hearing about opponents eager to revile or to slander Christians. Peter writes in another letter to Christian churches in 1 Peter 4 that the world around you, your friends, your neighbors, your family members, they will sometimes be surprised that you as a Christian do not join in their reckless, wild living. And because of that, because of that distinction, that, that difference, they heap abuse on you. Those are what Peter writes. But in this place, in this difficult culture, this is exactly where godly living takes place. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in the privacy of your bedroom or in a laboratory under lab conditions. It happens in Crete. It happens in that culture, in that time. And this is the case for you. Where does godly living take place? Here, now, in Halifax. What, what particular cultural norms are common and prominent in our time, in our place, that are out of step with godly living as God directs it? I'll just give you one example, one common Halifax example, I think, and that's being intoxicated, whether with alcohol or marijuana or, or something else. In, in Haligonian culture, this is not only encouraged, but it's legalized, it's normalized. There's a pub on every corner, there's a, a cannabis store next to your grocer. Drunkenness is, is totally normalized. It's, it's acceptable as a social practice. It's part of, of, of the life and the culture of Halifax, and you will certainly end up standing out in certain crowds if you refrain or if you deny its normalcy, or say that it's not fundamentally good. To follow Christ, to live a godly life, will cause you to stand out in significant ways in certain crowds. And so here's a caution for you. Here's a caution. If you're just floating in the same stream as everyone around you in Halifax, and, and you could never be considered by anyone that you work with, or your neighbors, for being somewhat of an oddball morally, it's reasonable to ask if you're actually living a godly life. If, there, if there's nothing about you that is distinct uh, about, uh, about you, this is a good question to ask, maybe a hard question to ask. Because where does godly living take, take place? It takes place in particular times where opposition abounds. Okay, so that's the who, what, and where of godly living, and now the why question. Why godly living? Why should we live godly lives? Why should we listen to God's particular directions? Why attend to who we are as particular people? Why should we have to stand out uncomfortably in our particular place? There are several good biblical reasons we could talk about, but Paul seems to have one specific in mind as we look at chapter 2. There's three places in our, in our passages uh, where Paul gives us a why for godly living. Why godly living? Paul would say, so that we can adorn the gospel, so that we can adorn the good news of Jesus. Look at verse 5. After giving some instructions to the younger women, Paul writes, they are to live godly lives so that the word of God may not be reviled, may not be dismissed. Uh, look at verse 8. After he directs Christian leaders in godly living, he says they should live in a way, live that way, so that... An opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil or, or better, uh, nothing legitimately evil to say about Christians. Look down to verse 10. After instructing bond servants in godliness, he tells them they must live this way so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Why godly living? Why is this so important? Why should we take time like this, like we do, 
to, to grow in it, to consider, to continue to emphasize it in our church. Because listen, by the way you live your life, you can either deny or you can adorn the gospel. Just by the way you live, without speaking a word, you can either deny the gospel or you can adorn it. If Christians aren't self-controlled, sexually pure, temperate, kind, faithful, where God has called them, it's actually really easy to ignore what they say. If the church is a mess of sin, the world can look at our lives and say, you don't believe or act on your own book, so why should we? You say that you believe what Paul says about God's love, and yet you ignore everything Paul says about godly living. Christians, listen, you, you have an unreal opportunity to discredit the gospel, to give people ample excuses to deny their only hope in Jesus. If you don't live out God's word, how will you ever convince your neighbors to? But on the other hand, as the end of verse 10 says, we also, no matter who we are, have an unreal opportunity to adorn or to make attractive in every way the good news of Jesus through your honesty and through your holy living. As Jesus says, as you live as salt and light in a decaying and a dark world, the hope of Jesus' forgiveness and transformation is displayed by the church. We have this opportunity to make even more beautiful the beautiful gospel of Jesus. Godly living matters for the rescue mission of the church in the world for the gospel's credibility, for our advance in cities like Halifax. Your growing godliness is vitally important to the growth of the gospel in Halifax. That's a big deal. Okay, so that, that's the who, what, where, and why of godly living. Finally, finally, we arrive to the how, the how question. How can we live godly? How can we live a godly life? It's a good question. We're going to talk about this more next week. Uh, the specific focus of us uh, today is verses 1 through 10. Um, that's We're mostly camping our time. We've always been kind of anchoring the text to verses 11 through 15. It, it's kind of a central hub in Paul's thinking in this entire letter. Um, but we're going, to, we're going to answer this question. How can we live godly? And this is the answer. Only by grace. We can live godly lives only by God's grace. The good news of Jesus is that we're brought into God's house by grace alone. When we were sick in sin, the great physician came out and he healed us. When we were lost, walking in the valley of the shadow of death, our great shepherd came to our rescue out of sheer grace and love. Not because of anything that we've done, Jesus came for sinful, sick, and lost people. This is his good pleasure to do it. But the good news is not only that we're rescued by grace, but also that that same grace empowers us now to live godly lives. Living godly lives is a work of grace as well. Christians throughout history have read passages like Titus 2, and sadly they've fallen into one of two ditches. There's two ditches on either side of the road. You've got uh, legalism on one side, and you've got lawlessness on the other side. Legalism teaches that our behavior is all that matters to God. That's it. Not, not the way you do things, not the way you, you feel in your heart. Um, it's not about God's grace. Uh, just do the work. Just be a Christian. Lawlessness, on the other hand, says that our behavior actually doesn't matter to God at all. It's all grace. You know, don't got to worry about your behavior or how you work. In Paul's letter to Titus, though, in other places, neither legalism nor lawlessness accords with sound doctrine. Neither of these ditches uh, flow with the teaching of the gospel. 
and simply because neither of them has any power in themselves to help us to live genuinely godly lives like God desires. See, the only fuel source powerful enough to, to, to keep our godly living going is the grace of God. That is the only fuel that will get this car running. If you look down at verse 11, uh, he begins by saying, for the grace of God. This is a connecting word. This is, this is a why and a how we live godly. For the grace of God, God's unmerited kindness, compassion to us, has appeared. It does this. It brings salvation for all people. It invites and it brings us into God's house. It cleans us up. But listen, it also does this. God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right now, who we are and where we are. If you want to know who directs godly living and what godly living looks like, you look to Christ, you listen to what he's speaking, but thankfully, he doesn't just leave you there. Now that you, now that you know what to do uh, and what I expect of you, go. No, Christ extends all of his love and power not only to rescue you from sin and death, but to help you to live a life that pleases him. This is why Christ has come. Look at verse 14. Christ gave himself, he gave himself to you, body and blood, on the cross, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now may you hear God's gracious invitation being made to you to come into his house, this invitation that is made through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, his son. May you be washed and cleansed through baptism for your sin so you can take your place in God's home and sit at his table. May you learn your table manners Learning to live a life of love to God and to those he seats around you. May you hear clearly all that God teaches you about godly living as you listen to him speak in his word. May our godly living as a church be salt and light in Halifax, preserving what's decaying, shining light in the darkness. May our words and actions always adorn the wonderful gospel of Jesus, and may our church rest in God's grace for both our salvation and for our lives of godliness. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves now to your grace. With thanks and gladness, we rest in your powerful love, receiving it through faith in your only son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.